My name is Adam, and I want to welcome you to episode seven of the Birding Life podcast. This is the podcast where we discover the birds and the people that pursue them. I'm always excited to see where people listen from. So wherever you're tuning in from, thanks for taking the time to listen. At the moment, we're in the middle of a cold front in South Africa. So for all the South African listeners, it's a good excuse to make a big cup of coffee, get a blanket, and most importantly, grab a big slab of chocolate. Keep an eye on the Birding Life Facebook page as I will announce the winner of the Fancy Peacock book later this week. Tonight's guest is a birder that I've been privileged to get to know as a good friend. Hegnell, who is one of the founders of the popular Birdlasser app, the app that has revolutionized atlasing and birding in Southern Africa. Hank, of course, speaks about the app, but he also speaks about how he started birding. He gives some birding tips and he gives away some of his big birding day secrets. But before we chat to Hank, I had a chat to someone who has a passion for some other winged creatures. Steve Woodall is one of the world's leading butterfly experts and has just through Straight Nature Publishing released the second edition of Butterflies of South Africa, a field guide. So let's chat to Steve about the book. So welcome to the show, Steve, and congratulations on the new book. Thanks, Adam. So there's a lot of birders who also enjoy butterflies. But for those who have never tried butterflying, what makes them so interesting? Well, butterflies have got a lot in common with birds. I mean, they're, they're beautiful creatures. A lot of them are brightly colored, interesting habits. You can get them in your garden without trying too hard, although it helps if you have the right plants. They've got interesting life histories as well. You know, they, they actually lay, lay eggs on plants, become caterpillars, which then hatch into butterflies eventually. And, you know, that actually gives people a lot of, a lot of things to study beyond just having a look at a pretty picture and saying, wow. And then how many species of butterfly are there in Southern Africa? Currently, there are 672, but that's changing all the time because every now and again, somebody discovers a new species. So, Steve, the reason I asked you to come on the show is obviously because the new field guide that has just been released. So it's been 15 years since the first edition was published. So why the need for a new edition and what is new in it? Well, for a start, the, the quality of photography over the past 15 years has increased dramatically. The, uh, the original first edition didn't have room to put all the various forms and subspecies in. So what we've done with the second edition is where we had, for instance, a, a winter form in the first edition. We put a summer form in the second edition. So you can actually use the two books together if you've got both editions. And also because of the great increase in citizen science uh, over, the, over the last 15 years, particularly in the five years after the first edition of the book came out, which is very well timed because we had Lepimat, the virtual museum and so on. What's happened since then is that we've got maps, distribution maps, which are based on actual scientific evidence rather than informed guesswork. And the, the maps in the new book are based on the, on the distribution data with a little bit of uh, predictive statistical work that was done by the, uh, the BDI, which was used once called the ADU. We worked very closely with them and we've used those maps. We know a lot more about distribution patterns. A lot of butterflies have changed their distribution over the last 15 years and that's all reflected, reflected in the book. I've seen the photo on the cover of the book. It's a stunning, stunning photo. Where do you source the photos for the, the field guides? Well, something like 90% of them I took. There's also a lot of people been shooting photographs that I see on Lepi Map, and so I'm able to um, to go into the the records. And if somebody's managed to photograph something that I've never managed to photograph, I ask them to lend me the picture, and they always do. So that's why the book, the new book, has got something like 70% new images compared to the first edition. Yeah. So you said the first edition had uh, said had over 1,800 photographs for identification. How many photographs does the second edition have, more or less? It's a little bit more. I think it's close to 1,900 now, but it's not it's not much more because the the space constraints are the same. It's uh, you know an A5 book, 25 millimeters thick. You can only shoehorn so many photographs into it. Okay. So obviously, most people listen to this podcast are birders. For birders, we have a complicated group of birds, which are called LBJs. And for someone who doesn't do butterflying regularly and has tried to identify some of the butterflies, it's almost like every single butterfly is an LBJ. So the question is, is how user-friendly is this book to those who are new to butterflying? 
Well, the book, first of all, has got a lot of these LBJs, which are little brain jobs or little blue jobs. They, they tend to be tiny butterflies the size of your fingernail. So we've even with a good pair of binoculars, you battle to see them. And okay, to take a photograph, it helps, but the book has got close-ups. And a lot of the time, we've actually got little arrows in the pictures, which, which point to the differences when they're really tiny differences, like one spot being in a slightly different place. So we, we have that sort of information in there as well. Uh, but it's, and of course, it's, it's comprehensive as well. Both this one and the previous edition have got every South African butterfly in there. So if you've seen a butterfly, you'll be able to find it in the book. So the question is, if somebody gets the book and they want to start butterflying, what sort of equipment would they need? Well, it helps to have a, a, a good pair of binoculars that can focus closely. And Pentax make the Papillon binoculars, which are named after butterflies. And they're sort of specially meant for butterflies and, uh, and they're not much use for birding. I find that 8x42s, I, I use Vortex because they were recommended to me as being very good. They've got a very close focusing distance. But I believe the new Shirovskis and a few of the other top class binoculars are the same as well. They normally allow you to get to about 1.1 meters from the butterfly, which is close enough to see this for details. Uh, you don't need a big fancy DSLR camera. You, these bridge cameras like the uh, Nikon Coolpix and the, the Canon PowerShots, they can get in really close. Uh, so you sometimes have to be a little bit patient with the slow focusing, but they work very well indeed. And then, of course, if you, re if you really want to go for it, then it helps to have a, two DSLR bodies, one with a 100mm macro on it, and the other one with a 300mm f4 with a 1.4 times extender. And with, that, with those two pieces of kit, nothing can escape you. So Steve, um, somebody hears this podcast, goes and buys the book and goes out butterflying and they see a butterfly in the field. How would the, the process using the new field guide look from seeing the butterfly in the field to actually coming up with the positive identification? Well, like all field guides, you have to know your way around it. So you need to spend some time studying it before you go out into the field. And it's broken down into families. So the, the main butterfly families are there, there's an impallidae, but which is the brushfooted butterflies, the Lycinidae, Papillionidae, which are swallowtails and so on. So you get to know what a, what a swallowtail looks like, what a, what a range of skipper looks like. You know, get, get, prepare yourself indoors. And also there are lots of websites you can go on to, like Nepimap and so on, where there's lots of photographs on there as well. So prepare yourself, get to know what the shape they are, you know, the, the sort of posture that they take when they're set, settled and that sort of thing. And then when you go out to the field, you've already got a bit of an idea what you're looking at. And then... Obviously, if you can take a photograph, that's fantastic because then when you're at home, you can open the book and, uh, and do a little bit of, bit of armchair ticking. But ultimately, when you're in the field, it's like, it's like birding. You have your book open, you have your pair of binoculars, and you can, you can take notes, you can, you can watch. One of the things about anything to do with, with a static image, like a book or an app, you don't put videos in there. And like birds, butterflies have got jizz. And once you get to know the, the specific flight pattern of, for instance, a swallowtail, or a skipper, or a, or a sapphire, then it becomes a lot easier, as it is with birds. Okay, so last question, why would somebody who's a birder, what motivation would you give a birder who's listening to this, who has never tried butterflying, to go out and get this book? Well, birding, of course, is a, is a way of, of appreciating the great outdoors and, and nature and biodiversity, and if you add butterflying to that, then you just get more out of, your, out of your field trips. And the other nice thing is as well that they, they tend to fly at slightly different times of the day. I know the birders are, are big on getting up at four o'clock in the morning. Sure, but butterflies as well. An early start is best because that's when they're at their least active. But generally midday on a hilltop or on a flower bed is where you see the most butterflies. Whereas birds, you need to get up a bit early in the morning. So it gives you a, a whole day of interest in, in the bush. So as soon as the birding dies down, the butterflying picks up and oh, it works together. So Steve, who can people contact if they would like more information about the new guide or if they would like to buy one? Well, if you go onto the uh, Straight Nature websites and you just Google Straight Nature and, uh, and, and do a search under Woodall, you'll find a page for the book. I sell them from my own home. And so um, if anybody just... Uh, drops me an email or, or goes onto my Facebook page and drops me a message, I'll be able to respond and send one. If you want to join a society to learn about butterflies and moths, of course there's moths too, then the Lepidoptera Society of Africa. Again, you can Google that, it'll come up. Uh, they're not as, nowhere near as big as bird life, but we've got, a lot of, we've got a lot of common members and also we do a lot of 
collaborative projects between us as well. We're very good friends with BirdLife and uh, we do a lot of things together. So the chances are that if you, if you already know a birder, they'll know somebody who knows a butterfly. So there's already a lot of overlap. Oh, it's been awesome having you at some of the club outings and getting to know you, even through the bird club, Steve. Thanks. Yeah, it's been great fun. I mean, it's the same for me with birds. I was into birds when I was a kid before I was into butterflies. So I'm getting so much more out of it as well. I find butterflies a lot easier to predate up than birds, by the way. So, Steve, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you being on the show today. What I'm going to do is I'll put all the links for your email address, um, links to your Facebook page, and all the links that are necessary. I'll pop them into the comment section of this podcast, and and people can make contact with you either locally or internationally. Be Thanks so much for being yeah. on the show. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks a million. Great chatting. Yeah. So welcome to the show, Hank. It's a real privilege to have you on the show. But before we get into the birding stuff, can you tell us a little bit about you, where you grew up, and a little bit about your family? Sure. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for hosting me. I grew up in Pretoria, schooled and university. Family-wise, I'm married, got three kids in primary school. So it's quite busy, especially during these times. In terms of interests, always quite a keen nature lover and a lot of sports. These days, just keep myself busy with work and um, bidding as much as I time with the family. So a very important question to ask. And I think for all the South African listeners, this is a key question. They're either going to love you after this question or hate you after this question. Are you a Blue Bull supporter? Yep. Nas Buerta is king. <laughs> I don't know if I should finish this interview now or keep going. I was friends with you, Hank, before this, but I don't, I don't know. I'm actually, I see you in a very different light now. Yeah, I'm a proud Shark supporter, and I will live and die Sharks. It's the team, the only team that matters in South African rugby. But we'll, we'll stop there so we keep our friendship with it. Hank, is the Birdlasser app your only job, or do you actually have a day job? Yeah, I've got a day job as well. I've got a very normal corporate job. You work for a company, engineering company here in Randburg, where I live. That's my eight to five job. Birdlasser was a full-time job at some point in time. And once it got traction, I went back to the formal job market. I also have a small IT company that I run on the side and a few other ventures. But it's basically my day job that keeps me really busy and helps fund Birdlasser to a certain extent. I can imagine during this COVID-19 pandemic that it's a lot more than an eight to five job. Yeah, no, look, it's very busy. I think a lot of people that work for companies realize that it's tough times, so you need to put in the extra hours to make sure we all survive. Can you tell us a little bit about your birding journey? How did it start? Was there a moment where birding hooked you? It started young, as, as I mentioned earlier, that I always enjoyed nature. and. Um, one of the first books I received was uh, Birds of the Kruger, which my parents bought me at about the age of, let's say, 10, 11. Never fanatical birder. I never had friends or family members that were birders, so I never quite got into the birding fraternity. Then just before my first born, year in the mid-2000s, 2005, six thereabouts, I just had this nudge that I should go and see if there's something formal about birding. Went onto the internet, realized, oh, there are birding clubs, and there's one in Randburg. I contacted them. They said, no, sure, come out with us on this outing next Sunday. We went out to Murrayvale, of all places. That was a big hook. It was amazing. I didn't know there were people like me, that type of like-minded people when it comes to birds. Didn't realize there were places like Murrayvale, and that was a definite hook. And then within about a year from that point, I met Craig Whittington-Jones via my wife that attended uh, Moms and Tots. He, she met his wife, got talking, realized we both into birding. I met him. He then introduced me to atlasing, and that was the major hook when I, I got hooked to atlasing. And yeah, the rest is history. So just a quick question. You mentioned earlier that you're married and you've got young kids. So how do you balance birding and family and business and all this? How do you balance it? Um, you just make sure birding is the top priority. Then the, the rest of the stuff just needs to fall into place. 
So fortunately, I've got a very supportive wife. As she had to do a lot of babysitting in the early days when I went out on Saturday or Sunday mornings. But it is a challenge. But to keep you going, doing local birding, even from your garden or within a few kilometers or in your pentad, it often catches the itch. And then you can move on to the, the other stuff. But it is always a challenge. And have any of the kids got into birding or enjoy birds at all? They all enjoy it. They all know their birds quite well. Um, none of them have become fanatical about it, like as birders. Maybe one day the chocha might just bite them. But I'm quite proud of them in the, in the way that they've got actually a very balanced love for nature. It's not just birds or anything. They, they like everything and they value life. So it's not a case of let's shoot this pigeon or kill the spider. They know that they're all important. And I really enjoy that they see the value in all the creatures. And, and they also get to know them. They call them by their names. Can you tell us the story of how this app came into being? At about 2010, 2011, I had the privilege of, for, with my job, travel quite extensively across the world. And specifically during those times when the smartphones came into the market, smartphone app development started happening. Fortunate to, to be involved with some of the, a company that was one of the first to do this on a major scale. So I got to see how it gets done. Just by the way, I'm not actually a developer itself. I was more in a managerial role. But I saw how it works, what constitutes a good app, and everything that goes around it. All the, oh, let's call it the admin and logistics behind getting an app to market and supporting it. So when our company closed down in 2013, we all got retrenched. One of the clients we had at that point was a guy, Will Harris. He's my partner, Bert Lasser. He then said, well, if I'm that interested into, in birds, which I shared with him, and I know how to do app development, let's see if we can get another group in and that can do us an app. I do the design of it and let's see where it goes. And uh, we managed to get two very competent developers in the space of mobile development. They work for a company called In Reality. The four of us then started this business and we developed the app. The aim was to get a foot in the door by targeting iPhones and um, the atlasing community, seeing give them a tool that, that makes atlasing easier. That proved to be very successful, and we soon afterwards developed a Microsoft and an Android version. And since then, we've listened to what the market wanted and started developing add-ons to it. So one of the very popular things are all the challenges and events we have as well as catering for conservation and research initiatives. So the data, if they sign up as a course with us and the user agrees that the data may be shared, very valuable data goes to these conservation agencies. And all these have actually worked out quite well, getting the, a good growth and a continued growth for, for uptake of our, of our app. What kind of costing are you looking at when you started this app up? Is it a cheap app to develop or expensive? Look, it's, it's very expensive. It's a lot of man hours that goes into it. Fortunately, as uh, partners in the beginning, we all said we'll pay with um, blood, sweat and tears. So there's very little money that had to be spent to make this happen. But once the basics were in place, uh, in reality, left the partnership and we had to employ people to take this further for the next couple of years. That is quite expensive. Developers are expensive <laughs> resources to have on board. So that's an ongoing cost. And it, it's very difficult to get something like this out for, let's say, under a million an app. If you go for three platforms like we did, it starts to, to become quite a nasty amount. And obviously, even though you have it out there, there's continuous costs to support it, um, whether it's developers having to fix issues or make sure it's still compatible to the latest Android version or iOS version and then hosting costs. And I'm going to say marketing, legal, there's all these hidden costs, which very few people know about, but it's an expensive thing. It's um, if you tackle something like this, you need to have a lot of passion and you need to be prepared to be in it for a long run. Similar to having a swimming pool. Huh? You just throw money at it, but when you get to swim in that pool, 
or see people's faces when they when they use your app and see how much joy it gives them, then it's all worth it. And how many people use the BirdNASA app? We just over seventeen thousand people this month. So we have a we've got monitoring stats counters, and I just saw earlier this month that we crossed over seventeen thousand registered users. There are obviously a lot more downloads. People just kicking the tie in to see what the app is about. But um, people that have used the app, registered and logged a few species, just over 17,000. Is it only a South African app or can you use it internationally? Oh, you can use it internationally. We've loaded most of the species of the world. I think we're just under 10,000 of the 10,500 species. It's quite widely used in the rest of Africa because there are other Atlas projects going on in West and Eastern Africa. But our growth in Europe, America, Australasia, every month grows by a couple percentages. So there's uptake everywhere. So I think we've obviously got listeners on this from all around the world. And I've got a lot of listeners who listen from America. So how does Bird Lassa compare to eBird and how is it different? Oh, no, we actually can't compare with eBird in America. They, they're massive there and they do such a good job with the Cornell lab behind them. Um, and they play very well into what the American birders want from an app like this. It, it is always, I'm a bit baffled that we still keep on growing in America. Just to add that if, even if you use BirdLess, you can still export your, your trip list and upload it onto your eBird account. So it's, it's not completely disjointed from, from their world. But yeah, they're doing a really good job. And I don't think it's, it's actually a com- competition over there. Similarly in, in Western Europe as well, where eBird is also quite big. So Hank, with 17,000 registered users, I'm sure that you are rolling in the dough, rolling in the cash from Birdlasser. You probably got a Ferrari in the driveway, a big house in Santon because of the money that's coming from Birdlasser. It doesn't bring in funds. And if it doesn't, how do you fund the app? No, there's not really much funding coming in. There's a lot of donations. Most notably, the support we get from BirdLife South Africa. Other than that, it's sponsors um, and donations. We are very happy to have people that come to the party and offer us free hosting for our data, which helps a tremendous amount. The rest of it is if we need cash to pay developers or anything else, it comes out of our pockets, the shareholders. But to be honest, the general community, uh, BirdLaser community, has been very generous Although we will never make a lot of money out of it, it does keep the lights on, the donations we get. So very grateful for that. People don't stop doing it. Um, but unfortunately, BirdLess is not something that's going to make money, we believe, or will ever make us rich. So unfortunately, that's not going to happen. So what impact has the app had on South African birding and bird conservation? Difficult. I, I honestly hope it's been a, a win-win for all. I do believe the data we share with conservation agencies and and other research initiatives do add value, but it's obviously a very small part of what they need to make uh, conservation work, but hopefully we play a role, as insignificant as it may be. In the general burning community, I think people that understand what the app is there for, helping you keep track of your sightings, update your life list, to get involved in some healthy competition with the challenges we host. And all the while, you know, you can get that data to go into the hands of conservation bodies. Those people enjoy it and I can see they value it. Also like the fact that we take away some of the effort they need to put in when they need to write up trips and stuff. It's quite convenient to do an export and you've got your species list there. So I think it helps a lot of people in a lot of good ways. And hopefully they enjoy it and they keep supporting us. I must say one thing that's crazy about the challenges, when you participate in these challenges, they're a lot of fun. We have one for our local area, Sapphire Coast. And I can tell you at times, if I record a bird, <laughs> within five minutes, someone's got hold of me and say, oh, where did you see that bird? It's amazing how Bird Lassa obviously has a, a bigger role in terms of conservation and this kind of thing. But it's also, it just brings the birding community together. Oh, thank you. Um, it's always been the idea, and uh, 
fortunately, people don't take it too serious. I call it a friendly competition. And the, the challenge should always be with yourself. It um, shouldn't be that you need to compare yourself with others on a leaderboard. I think that's one of the nice things about birding is, is the fact that we can challenge ourselves, get the, to become a better birder, find a new patch for another species in your hood, in your, in your pentad. Um, and I can see that the, these challenges and events have really fueled that fire amongst the birding community. So Hank, you're a passionate atlaser. And when I first started birding and I heard this word, atlasing, it was one of those really weird words. It's one of those things that I thought, no, no, I'll never be able to do that. To be honest with you, I remember we went birding at a Baba Vanga, which is a local birding spot. And you were one of the reasons I got into atlasing in the first place. So in simple language, can you explain what atlasing is? Yeah, atlasing is great. That's the simplest way <laughs> I can put it. But yeah, atlasing is a way of birding. Probably the best description is to do a bird surveying. So there's a specific area that's applicable to this survey exercise and a specific way of going about logging the birds. And the third factor is a specific duration. So we call this area pentad. It's five minutes by five minutes lat and longitude. Even though it sounds complicated, that's why we developed bird assets. It shows you on a map, on Google Maps, this area, so you can make sure you don't go outside of this area. The idea is to go and visit as many habitats as possible within a five calendar day period with a minimum time of two hours and a maximum five days and log the species in the order you observe them. As simple as that. When the five day period is finished or you leave that pentad area, not to return in the next five days, you submit your card. That card is obviously a list of species and it goes to the University of Cape Town, the SUBOP2 project. It's where people, uh, conservation agencies, environmental impact assessment organizations, that's where they get this immensely valuable data. What makes it so great for the contributor, because we don't get paid, it's your time, it's your money. You need to pay for the fuel that takes you to sometimes very remote areas. But it's to see that competitiveness we have in birders to be able to to see what is the most birds I can squeeze out of this pentad. And it's always a thing going and having a look on the system to see who else has been there and what's the count they got. What time of year is obviously also applicable. So you immediately compete with other people without anybody knowing it. You compete with yourself. You um, try to see if there's other places that you have not been, other habitats. You knock on farmers' doors to see if you can go into their private properties which is also a great thing about atlasing is how open the, the rural communities are if you first tell them and you want to come onto their private property to access the dam. And then the worm just wants to show you the resident African fish eagle and talk to you for half an hour about the fish eagle. So sometimes you need to try and dodge that. But yeah, no, atlasing is, becomes a way of birding, becomes a way of life. It's going where nobody else is atlased or where you've never atlased and trying to see if you can find something that nobody else has found. I remember when you first told me about atlasing, you said to me that a lot of the best birders that you know are atlases. So how do you feel that atlasing improves a person's birding? Um, one of the requirements of atlasing is that you identify every bird you encounter, whether it's by call or by sight. So what becomes important, uh, and, and because it's also important that you record the birds in the order you observe them, it's critically important that everything you see in here can be identified. So no, it doesn't matter how many times you've seen a Cape Sparrow or Southern Mask Weaver. For atlasing, every time you start a new atlas card, you need to identify that bird again and put them, put them on the list. So you start honing your skills on calls, you start focusing when it's the, the female or don breeding plumage. So you are forced to, every time you encounter a bird, to really focus and identify it. So, and I believe that's what makes you a better birder. For non-atlases, you're not going to spend a lot of time looking at the female the sparrow. You have it on your life list, or if you've seen it before, you brush over it and you move on. It's actually quite scary when you meet non-atlases that's birders for 
10, 15 years and they still can't tell the difference between a Cape or a house sparrow female. So that's the difference with, with atlasing. It forces you to look, forces you to, to listen and forces you to identify. It bugs you if you can't identify that bird and you have to skip it and move on to the next one because according to the protocol, you did not lock in the order that you've observed them. So it really, really forces you to, to make that extra effort in identifying those birds. I think, Hank, before I started atlasing, you know, I'd go birding in a specific spot. And if I didn't know what a bird was, I'd just be like, oh, I don't know what that bird is and just move on. Where because of atlasing, it actually forces me to actually look at the bird and to work out what bird I'm looking at. So it's definitely improved my birding in that way. And I think also we'll chat about a little bit again just now, but in terms of observation skills and my listening skills, you know, you want to record as, as much as you can in that time. That is what's helped me as a birder. Yeah, and I mean, that thing that, especially if you're a beginner birder and, and you're also into atlasing, what tends to happen is people start buying good cameras and they take these record shots so that they can maybe ask a friend or a expert afterwards or just sit with this photo and, and, and spend the time to identify the bird there. So I think a lot of really good photographers also started coming about because of atlasing and the and the need to, to preserve that record for later identification. So Hank, I'm a member of my local bird club, BirdLife Port Natal, and I know our club chair, Nicolette Forbes, regularly speaks about birdlass and atlasing. How have bird clubs contributed to the growth of atlasing in South Africa? Oh, I think they've done a, a great job. I can't think of a club that doesn't do atlasing or have a few passionate atlases amongst them. A lot of clubs organize atlas bashes. So they look at a map and see which pentads or areas are under atlas. And then they organize amongst themselves that they go spend a weekend there. They've got a target map and they assign people to sit in pentads. And it's effectively, let's say, a 12 or 13 hour atlasing day for maybe two or three days. So these things are often done and, uh, and managed by the birding clubs. And other than that, what the clubs have also done in past years, they've helped sponsor or fund Birdlasser. By doing that, we make sure that Birdlasser is still there as a tool for atlases. So I think clubs have really come to the party in terms of atlasing. I hope we can sustain that momentum and we can get more people and more clubs to, to contribute to atlasing. So you spoke on these atlasing bashes. Just a question. So if somebody's listening and they want to find these pentads that haven't been atlased a lot, how would they find those pentads that haven't been at us a lot? How would they know where to look? Open Google and search for SABAP2, S-A-B-A-P-2. You'll most probably hit the website. Once you go into the website, there's a coverage map section. You tap on that, you'll get a map with all these grids or blocks in grids on the map. And there's a color code key next to the map that'll explain the color um, map to the number of cards that have been submitted or visits to that pentad. Well, I must be honest, there are very few unatlist pentads left in the country. You need to go quite far and wide, thinking about the remote regions of the Karoo or the Kalahari. But close to the main city centers, there are hardly any left. But I mean, if you see one that only has one or two visits, it's also nice to go and do an atlas for them. So some of two is the best place. The other ones are obviously Facebook. There are sub-up two groups on Facebook and make contact there. Or if you're part of a bird club, see who the atlases are and get them to show you what atlasing is about, how to use bird to do atlasing, and how it all ties together with this sub-up two project and how you can get information from their website. So a few years ago, you did a trip from Johannesburg to Cape Town to chase some rarities. My friend Mark Titley was part of this non-stop birding group and he was actually the way I got to know you. I remember him telling me that you recorded birds all the way down and all the way back. And I think as far as I remember, this was a nonstop trip. You literally drove there and drove back. Can you tell us some of your best birding twitches that you have been on? Most memorable one is probably my first one. There was the golden pipit in Pangola, um, the reserve there. And I kept on hearing via the bird net, emailing system that it's still there, it's still there. And I told myself, you know what, if this bird is still there, come this weekend, we're going. 
the problem at that point was <laughs> I had the very young kids the, talking about something like a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And um, that Saturday morning, there was a mail that came in at about seven o'clock. Somebody got to see it and I told my wife, I think we need to go. And we packed the car within an hour. Eight o'clock, we left Joburg. And we got in Pongola at about four or five the afternoon. There were roadworks all the way there. Tough being in a car with two screaming kids, but we made it the next morning. Woke up, went to the reserve, got to see it there, spent some time with it, and we had to drive back immediately. So that's probably my most memorable pitch. The one I did with Mark and the Gelden Acer was also a very memorable one. We left at 4 o'clock Germiston. We drove all the way to Cape Town, got there at 7 o'clock in the morning, got to see the birds, the Temnik Stint, amongst others. Then to Stolbuy to get the Buzzet and all the way back, nonstop. And then there were all the others, the ones that you quickly buy a plane ticket and you fly down to go and get a, a bird. And others are closer to home. And you make a nice Atlas day of it. You make sure that rarity gets on a full protocol card, like we did with the one that I went with Mark down to Cape Town. I think every time I make an Atlas exercise of, of getting this rarity on a full protocol card just makes it more memorable. It always feels good to put a rarity on an Atlas card. So, Hank, something that some people might not know about you is that you are an amazing birder. I've been able to bird with you on two occasions, and these are two of the memories I have of you. One was we went birding on a kopi in Gauteng. That's a little hill for those who don't understand Afrikaans. When the swifts and the swallows started to shower, I remember you got, on your, you got flats on your back, and you started identifying all the swifts and swallows that you saw. Another memory was you came down to Durban for the Wacta Conservation Festival and there were raptors flying around and everyone else saw raptor. And every time they saw raptor, like we do in KZN, oh, cow, yellow bull kite, yellow bull kite, yellow bull kite. And all of a sudden, you pointed out a, a Warburg's eagle that everyone had missed. And you have amazing skill in terms of both seeing and identifying the birds that you see. Can you give us some tips as to how we can improve in these two areas as birders? Thanks for that compliment. I don't think I'm that great. I think it just comes with a lot of practice. The, and, and one of them being atlasing. The more you're going to atlas, the more you're going to be focused on really looking at every species that you encounter. It may very well be how I spotted the Walberg's eagle and not just assuming it's another yellow-billed kite. My only tips are get out there as often as possible. Don't assume what you see is what you thought it may be, look at it, make sure it is what it is. Same goes for, for, for calls, especially in certain times of the year when you've got all the wobblers mimicking other birds. It becomes a nice challenge. It's challenging yourself to be sure about what you've heard and what you've seen. Um, the other thing I can add as a tip is to learn from the experts. Often you, you spend time with a better birder and it always happens. And listen to what he or she has to say when they pick up a sound, how they pick up on a sound, and how they go about identifying it. And I don't believe you ever need to be shy about asking. I still do. If somebody says it's a this, and I honestly believe it's something else, I would confront them and say, why do you think it's that? And then listen. And maybe you are right, and maybe they are right. But it's, it's good to have the conversation. It's good to have that type of people that won't be offended if you ask these questions and challenge them. Um, this is how you talk about it. Hopefully there's a camera close by and the picture could have been taken. It's those questioning, questioning yourself, asking other people for help and questioning their ideas as well that hones uh, your skills. And then the last tip is to go out and bird as often as possible. In a week or two, you can quickly develop a few new skills, picking up in the calls of a few new birds. Yo, if you don't do that often enough, a year later you visit that specific area again, you hear those bird calls, you know you know them, but you just can't put your finger on it right now. So it's, it's, it's important to go out as often as possible. And the best place to do it is in your hood. Go out, get to know the common birds, know them very well. If you hear something else, you immediately will know it's not one of those 50 or 60 common birds I know. That will get you onto it. And then it's, it's, it's knowing what it is. Ask people, get to know your Roberts or Sussel apps that has the calls and the photos. Start building your own photo library as well. Hope that is, those are useful tips. Just talking about birding your own pentad, I just remembered you were saying about the amount of 
top birders in the country that actually live in your pentad? Yeah, we're very fortunate. There's an amazing group of birders here. One of your previous podcast guests, John Kingon, lives in my pentad and a lot of others. It is an amazing pentad. The birds we've had here and, and typically get in a year, quite phenomenal. People outside of Joburg might not ever imagine that in a small little area like this western part of Joburg, we typically get about 150 to 200 species a year in this pentad. And this is in the middle of Joburg. And it has amazing birds like red-chested flufftails. Um, we've even had buff-spotted flufftail in here. We get airsawk eagles, peregrine falcons. Um, really amazing stuff. So Hank, let's say you wake up and you have a day to bird. What would be your preferred habitat and how would a day's birding look for you? How would you approach it on a practical level? Sure, it all depends on what's the reason for that birding day. How did it come about? I'd say atlasing is always part of it. Let's say it's not a twitching day. There's nothing specific I want to go and get. I'll typically plan it to go where I need to, I've never been to or I haven't atlas there. Or it's maybe part of an atlas bash or some atlasing objective to get to certain pentads for this year. I'll always do a bit of preparation, having a look at who's been there, what they've seen, to get an idea of what's possible. Um, Habitat-wise, I must be honest, I really have no preference. I really just like to get anywhere to see what's possible in that area. I do like grasslands, simply because people tend to not like it and pass through because it's difficult birding. So I think that's part of the challenge or the appeal is the challenge of getting those birds in those areas. And the other odd one is disturbed habitats, either changeovers or, or just not as per any book. It's a disturbed habitat and let's see what's possible in this area. So I think it always boils down to the challenge. What is possible irrespective of where you are? Just on a side note, Melissa Whitecross last night did a Zoom chat on birding in grasslands and it was really really good chats if birdlife south africa put it online it might be really be worth watching again it was really really great and interesting how many of the top birders in south africa actually enjoy grassland birding it's it's interesting like you said it's quite challenging but a lot of the top birders it's their favorite type of birding yeah no i can imagine i'm I'm, and add to that anywhere that's a bit dry if you go to the karoo I think it's the fact that, you know, if any other birder would just pass through and say, oh, there can't be much here, maybe a couple of pied crow. It, that, that challenge immediately gets ignited and you think, okay, let's see what is an actual fact possible here. Especially if you look at the sub-up too and you look at what's been seen in this pentad and you see people get 16 or 18 species, you think, oh, no, man, surely 30 or 40 species are possible. And again, you, that's the appeal. It's seeing what you can get. Um, something about you, Hank, I saw when I birded with you is that you have great skill at identifying birds by call. I'm always amazed at how many species you actually get just by, just by call. How can a birder that is listening improve in the area of bird calls? Yeah, look, the people that have seen me in person know that with ears like mine, it's not that difficult to get onto the calls that easy. But on a serious note, I think you either have it or not. I think it's very difficult to get to a way of knowing what that bird is. I think the more you're going to hear it, obviously it's going to help. But the most difficult part of identifying by bird is latching on that call. And and amongst all the other calls and noises is to know that is something I haven't heard before. That is something special. Two or three levels I'm going to say deeper than what the obvious calls, where the obvious calls are coming from. What I always tell myself is it feels like every species of bird is like a, a person talking and you get to know their voice. Whether I, if I'm standing behind you and you hear me talk, you'll know it's, it's a hink. And even if I speak another language, you'll still know it's a hink. So what I mean by that is even though the bird makes a different call, you need to know that is a Cape Robin chat. That's the sound of their voice so that they don't throw you off if they mimic another bird or um, just have a different call, an alarm call. 
you need to know that personal type of call. And instead of trying to, to recall what the type of uh, the, the, the melody is they, they sing or the, the melody of the call. So it's a difficult one. It takes a lot of practice. And I think you need to really want to know how to do it so that you spend that time just listening, closing your eyes and listening and trying to identify. The problem is obviously you can't necessarily take a photo and go back and ask people what it is. Very few people have proper sound recording equipment. So it is a difficult one, but so enjoyable once you get hooked on it and you can actually do birding just by ear. Um, something I've started doing from what Trevor Horica spoke, but Trevor said it's a lot easier when you see the bird and you hear the call. So what I've started doing now is when I see a specific bird calling, I try and listen to the call and take notes of how the call sounds. Then I have a little notebook with me and I write down four or five birds from that day. And when I get home, I just spend a bit of time almost reviewing the birds, those specific birds and try to, to learn those birds calls. And I think maybe the visual along with the, the audio hopefully will help in the long run. Definitely. That is actually a very good tip. Seeing that bird making that call, seeing the big opening and, and often the little crest on their head when they do this, that uh, picture stays with you and somehow the call then goes with that quite nicely. Also, I think trying to transcribe the call, I think Fancy wrote about the sonograms and that. So I don't, I'm not as clever enough to do sonograms and that, but I try and you know, describe the call. Like I always think of a little greenback camaroctera. It's almost like, it's like marbles clicking together. And I think if you can describe the call, you're more likely to remember the call afterwards. I think that's some things that have helped me a little bit. I'm not saying I'm an expert in this. I'm far from an expert in calls, but it's things I'm trying out. Yeah, that is a very good example. The old name being a bleating wobbler. That, that name of the bird, calling it a bleating wobbler, you can actually hear the two marbles hitting each other with that call. And then some birds actually, like a pygmy fro, the red-chested cuckoo, tells you what the, the call is like, just in the bird name. Even that helps sometimes. So, Hank, we nearly finished, but I'm a, before we finish off, I'm going to ask you to give some of your secrets away now. You have been part of one of the top teams in South Africa for the Big Birding Day for many years. So I'm going to ask you to give us some of your secrets. Firstly, I want you to tell us how the months before Big Birding Day looks. How do you prepare for the day so that you can maximize the amount of species you see? Maybe also chat about how you guys prepare together as a team. Yeah, so we typically start about two months before. We do the Polakwani to Sanin route. And the Salvin, Rotenbach and I would typically drive up, spend the weekend at Joe's place, and then do reconnaissance um, from there, go to our hotspots. Yeah, obviously, it's very important to see what recent rains or changes to the habitat has done, whether it's something is still worth visiting or not. Um, fortunately, Joe lives up there, so he gets to do quite a bit of uh, reconnaissance work throughout the year. And there are a lot of other birders in that Limpopo area that does a similar route. And we all share our, our Ricky um, intel, so we get a lot from the the Fantondas and Jody De Brain that lives up there and, and tells us what's happening in specific areas. So it's, it's using intel from other birders is definitely what we do. It's going to our known spots and see whether it's still worth going or do we need to go and find new spots. But spending time there and making sure you, again, get familiar with the calls. Um, but at, ultimately, nothing beats knowing the habitats. You need to know where the ideal habitat is, where you're going to get the biggest percentage hit for that species in that habitat. There's forests where we go, the grasslands, and there are a lot of them. So you need to know which patch in which forest or again through the road to cover whatever grasslands there are or that type of habitat, where's the best spot for it. So it, it all, typically always boils down to, to habitat and knowing where it is. So the recce's are quite important. And then how does the day actually look for you? What time do you start? What time do you finish? And just shortly, how does the day look for your team? It's always a funny one because in the last couple of years, somehow it's always a big rain day on the day. Last year, fortunately, it wasn't. So it's difficult to predict how you're going to go about it if it's, it's, if it's thunderstorms and hail and rain the whole day. But what we typically do on the Friday is to do the birding big day. So you get home quite late. 
and let's say seven, eight o'clock, and it's always the intention to go to bed early, but it never happens. You somehow end up doing an all night on the Friday. The adrenaline's flowing, so especially if you start hearing the rain come down, you realize that you need to make changes to your plan. So for whoever got to sleep, we wake up at about two, half past two, to leave at about three o'clock. Typically head off to Polokwane Nature Reserve or Game Reserve to, to start the, to be there for the dawn chorus with a lot of other birding teams. It's always nice to see other people that <laughs> early in the morning. And then it's just burning all the that all the time. We normally get to the other side, the other hundred kilometer point at about six, seven o'clock in the evening, and then we have to drive back all the way to Polakwani, trying to see what birds we've missed, see if we can find something like a bat hawk on a nest or yeah, a bus spotted fluffy calling from the valley. But we typically go up until twelve o'clock. It's we make as much use of that time as possible to find the birds that we've missed during the day. And then getting back home, um, you are completely knackered, being up for almost 48 hours. But then you need to sit and see if we've missed anything, the scribe that logged. We retrace our steps where we were and call out the birds from memory, what we saw, where we saw them. Did at least two of us see them or heard the species? That's also important. A day like that typically produces five to eight species that only one of the members saw or heard, which never makes the list. Doing a thorough test or exercise of making sure we've logged everything that we actually encountered. And then typically go to bed probably somewhere between two and three in the morning the next day. Quite crazy. A lot of work to become the top team in the country. So, Henk, just in closing, how can someone get more information or perhaps even donate towards Birdassa? Oh, quite easy. Go to our website. Right at the bottom is a donate button. It's, uh, it just gives our banking details and somebody can go and get it there and make a donation as much as they like. Other than that, if you don't know how to get to our website, you can contact us at info at birdlasser.com. Uh, Hank, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it being on the show. What I'll do is I'll put all the links for the website as well as the email address in the comment section of, of this podcast. So make sure to go check it out. Yeah. Thanks Hank for your time. I really appreciate it and hope you have an amazing evening. Oh, thank you, Adam, and thanks for inviting me as a guest. Um, hope to see you soon so we can do a bit of atlasing. I want to once again thank Hank. It was really good to have you on the show. Be sure to tune into next week's show as I have a chat to Adam Riley, the founder of Rock Jumper Birding Tours. He not only shares his story, gives some birding tips, but we will also be taking a virtual birding trip through one of Positive Natal's best birding areas, allowing you to get some up-to-date information about some birding spots and the birds that you have a chance of seeing there. Make sure to follow The Birding Life on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Instagram to not only get information about podcasts, but also to get a lot more on birds and the birders that make up this birding community. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, be blessed and happy birding.